Welcome everyone. This is Manny Fishman, the chair of the real estate group in Northern California of Buckhalter. And I am pleased to welcome Eric Hansen from Jones Lang LaSalle. Eric is the senior director of JLL Capital Markets in San Francisco and is primarily involved in the sale of San Francisco office buildings for the past 10 years. Uh, he's worked on many assignments at, uh, over that time, including representing the seller of the recently completed sale of Transamerica Pyramid, uh, also the sale of 100 Pine and One Post Street. Eric and I were recently on a panel and uh, I wish I could have given Eric 20 minutes just to speak on his own. So the impetus of this podcast is to really focus on Eric's comments mm -hmm. on the state of the capital markets in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think at our panel, um, you called 2024 a reset year. And by reset, you meant that I think that there were some transactions in 2023, which have set a bet of a market or a floor for the market, and that you're seeing more bidders bid on properties. And that's why you called it a reset year. So could you talk about that, Eric? Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. And I think to some extent, 2023 was the beginning of that and that'll sort of continue into 2024. You know, I think when you look back at, you know, pre-COVID and, and where the market was, it's really important to understand, you know, the context of, of, you know, where we were and where we are today. And, you know, in 2018-19, San Francisco was the, the hottest, strongest office market in the country, arguably, um, related to rents, vacancy at, you know, 5% or below, rents at $90 a square foot, you know, virtually across the city. And obviously building values uh, corresponded with low interest rates and a lot of investors wanted to be in the market. So we saw trades, you know, average pricing of 800, 900 a foot uh, across building types and many trades above a thousand a foot. So that's where we were. And then we all know the world changed. <clears throat> and, you know, really in the last couple of years, you know, 21 through most of 22, the market effectively stalled. There was limited leasing activity the interest rate environment was favorable for a period of time. And then we obviously saw things start to change in uh, 2022. And that combination along with just the overall uncertainty in the office market of what the new normal is gonna look like created just an absolute freeze on the transactional environment. So I think that everyone in the market knew that things had changed dramatically and they knew that things probably had changed for the negative, but until there is comps and data, it's really hard to look around and really understand what, you know, what the new value paradigm is. And so we saw that uh, start to emerge in early 23. Uh, that was led by a few corporate sales of, um, you know, corporations shedding excess real estate. And then that followed with a few other um, investors deciding to part ways with their assets, a few lender facilitated transactions. And, and we ended up seeing probably more transaction activity in 2023 than anyone would have expected. I mean, plus or minus 10 sales of over uh, 500 million in value. So it was painful. It's, it's hard, uh, you know, consulting our clients and, you know, you know, transacting for them, knowing that it's not a great situation, but, you know, I think people can sort of accept reality and, and make this decision and move on. And we're, we're seeing more of that, you know, percolating and starting to come to fruition as we roll into 2024. Uh, your comment though, about seeing more bidders 
at these um, RFPs or LOIs for potential sales is um, a good one. I, I, anecdotally, when I talk to clients that are bidding on projects, they're surprised to see uh, over 10 offers on a building that is selling for, let's say, a, um, a at least a 60% discount from pre-COVID uh, numbers. The psychology of things is interesting. I mean, to my earlier point, when there's no data, it's really hard to be very convicted in a decision, even though if you know, even if you know you're getting that discount. Um, as soon as trade started to close and price points started to emerge, I think people, you know, kind of saw a for sale sign over San Francisco, and there were some articles in the in the journal and other things, and they said, "Wow, if I can buy a good building in the middle of downtown on California Street or Sansom Street or whatever it might be for." effectively 70, you know, percent off of what it was worth uh, pre-COVID, that feels like a great uh, long-term bet. So we started to see bid sheets go from, you know, really nothing in 2022 on a few things we worked, uh, we worked on to, you know, five to 10. And then, you know, more recently we've had, you know, well over 10 offers uh, on some, on some things we've worked on. And it's really encouraging to see uh, because again, people look around, they see trades and then they hear that, someone's bidding on something, they go, oh, well, they're smart. Um, what am I missing out on? So it's a bit of a, we've kind of called it the FOMO, the fear of missing out of, you know, a point in time uh, where you can buy good real estate at, you know, significant discounts. And, you know, people look to San Francisco, you know, how it's performed historically going back to the dot-com and whatnot and GFC and it, it always roars back. You know, people realize this time's different and they're, uh, they're being very conservative and thoughtful about what the recovery will look like uh, in the future, but they still see a lot of value in, in buying San Francisco office real estate. Well, let's let's get to one of the key questions, which is developing a thesis for buying in San Francisco now. What is the why, uh, given the fact that vacancies are so high, we still have difficulty in getting our employees back to the office. The fact that there's just an excess of supply versus demand what is the thesis for buying now in 2024? Um, it varies and, you know, everyone formulates their own thesis or business plan. But I think the themes are, um, it continues to be a stock pickers market. And by that, I mean, we're by no means in a momentum market, uh, given the, the challenges with the leasing, uh, with the leasing statistics and what's going on there, right? So it's not just, hey, I'm going to buy San Francisco uh, and, and see how it goes and, and bet on the wave to, to rise up with rents and, and you know, everything is going to be great, right? So we're still very much in a discerning market. So people are very selective about specific buildings and about specific locations, you know, even streets that they say this street in this micro area is going to be very successful. So um, they're being very, very diligent about assets, which is smart. Um, I think, again, to the point earlier, when you can buy a high quality building for two to 300 a foot, you're obviously able to be very competitive about your business plan going forward. And whether your plan is to do as little to it as possible and limit TI costs and base building capital costs and just really control expenses and do low rents, you can you know, theoretically be successful there. Um, or you can take advantage of this low basis and put a bunch of money into it and chase the higher end of the market. You know, We're still seeing really strong performance uh, in San Francisco and really across the country on higher end buildings that have amenities, views, et cetera. I mean, those buildings are, the, the, the proof is in the pudding there. I mean, it's not just talk, you know, we're seeing leases get done in those buildings 
in absorption and vacancy lower in those buildings. So you can take advantage of that low basis and put a bunch of money into it and still feel good about your stabilized cost. We have examples of each of those uh, type of thesis uh, in recent transactions. Right. One was 350 California, where um, an investor group, a local group, uh, put in almost 100% equity uh, to buy a downtown office building on the theory that it had good bones and they could just lease it with minimal capital investment. And they've actually had some successes in uh, entering into new leases. And then we had a second transaction at 180 Howard, where an investor group actually bought it with the intent of investing capital and actually got purchased money financing, which was based on investing capital so that they could lease the building at a higher rent. So both of those points are borne out uh, by the market itself. Each of those transactions leads to a, another great point for you, financing. How does one get financing in today's market? That is the big uh, elephant in the room um, that you know we, we are uh, paying very close attention to, right? Because the debt financing options for acquisitions or refinances right now are pretty much zero to extremely limited. Um, the traditional money center banks are uh, dealing with their own issues with their existing portfolios and given regulatory issues and everything going on in their capital markets world, they're effectively on the sidelines, um, not, not playing ball right now. Um, and that you know translates to uh, life companies who have been active in the past, uh, to some extent CNBS. Um, so really you know higher, higher octane or more expensive financing solutions typically through debt funds or, or groups of that nature are pretty much your only option. And the challenge is obviously, if, if you know, for example, if you're buying a vacant building and your cost of debt is 12%, uh, you could buy the building for $200 a foot. But if you're feeding that debt with no cash flow coverage for one, two, three years, that just, you know, that eats into your basis, you know, right away. So that's, that's really tough. So, you know, pretty much um, except for a couple of examples, like 180 Howard, you know, everything is all cash right now. And, you know, the, the comps that have occurred are 20 to, 75 million in value. So the smaller deals are more liquid right now, um, you know, sub 50 million because you can buy them all cash. There's a bigger group of, of investors, whether it be private or, you know, quasi institutional that can buy those all cash. Uh, once you get into the 100 million plus range, it just is really tough because that's a massive equity chuck. Not many people can do that. And with no really accretive debt options, um, that, you know, that, that part of the market is not quite there yet. And I think 2024 will be interesting. Are we going to see a couple of examples of trades that that uh, that are going to be in the 100 plus million dollar range? You know, there could be, but it's still a big question mark. And um, you know, we're battling uh, challenge fundamentals. We're we're and we're battling higher interest rates uh, that are. You know, we think it's going to be higher for longer. And then we're just battling just a liquidity issue with the banks of you know who's going to start lending on office buildings in the future, and no one really knows. Um, that's a that's a big question that we're trying to get an answer to, even though it's uh, uh, frustrating at this point. There was a lot there, and I hope everyone listening to the podcasts takes the time to maybe even replay what Eric just said about interest rates, the, the viability of the debt market uh, today, especially for certain buildings over $100 million, and what that might mean for new investor groups that are coming in, what they're able to focus on. One of the data points from the panel that Eric and I participated in came from a, an a investor group that did buy a building and they said they sent out 20 
proposals for uh, debt to help them buy the building that they bought and got no responses. So sending out 20 requests to see if a lender group would lend on an asset with a credit worthy owner investor group and got no uh, LOIs back uh, to lend money. So that does say something about uh, where we are in the debt market. Um, I am wondering if you think having an assumable loan or buying a, a property that's been taken back uh, by a lender from a deed in lieu of foreclosure adds anything to our discussion. Yeah, 100%. I mean, deals that are able to get done um, or that are getting done are, you know, all cash, obviously. Um, assumable debt is everyone's best friend right now. Um, if there's a loan that can be assumed that supports the value that has obviously an attractive uh, interest rate and all that, I mean, that is very, very important. And then we are seeing cases of seller financing, right? Well, so whether it's a bank that's involved in taking a property back that potentially will recast their loan for a new acquisition or some larger institutional sellers that are considering seller financing. There was one case in San Francisco at 123 Townsend Street where a core fund um, carried back paper because again, everyone sees that that's one of the, that's, that's a mechanism to create a transaction liquidity. You know, people don't necessarily want to do it, but if they have a goal of um, shutting down a property or, you know, rebalancing their portfolio, you know, I think there's a realization that that's a key component right now. So that's kind of what we have, uh, at, you know, in the, in the stable of uh, debt financing options. And we're hope, you know, hopeful that as the year progresses and, you know, hopefully indexes on the capital markets stabilize at some point, it's not happening this week. Uh, and then the fundamentals improve that there will be more financing options from traditional sources in the future. I think both you and I, would say that what's different about this market than the last downturn is that people buying today have to plan for a hold period of seven years. I'm not even going to say five years anymore. It's a mm -hmm. long hold period, which is different than what in the past we were all accustomed to. That's correct. Um, again, the early transactions that we've seen are primarily high net worth capital that have a very long-term approach. So they can hold something for 10, 20 years. Um, the group that bought uh, 350 California Street, Swig, you know, they've been investing in San Francisco for over 50 years. They, they have properties that they've owned for decades. So they can take that approach. And then obviously if things get better in the near term, uh, they can, you know, explore that business plan. And a lot of groups we're talking to are saying, look, we have a 10-year approach. If we can get debt in two or three years, we'll put a loan on it. That's kind of a quasi exit or, you know, way to look at their business plan. And then, um, yeah, if things get better three, five years, they'll, they'll assess, but you have to take that long-term approach, you know, uh, banking on a uh, three, five year, you know, get in, lease it up, stabilize it, sell it is just, it's, it's not a, it's not a good way to look at the, the, the world right now. Um, but things can change quickly as we've seen before, you know, in San Francisco and the capital markets and, um, having that flexibility and, and uh, you know, ability to alter your business plan and look at the long game is, is definitely important. One thing that came out in our panel discussion was the inherent attractiveness of the San Francisco market based on our knowledge base. Uh, we do have a large tech community and a large community of highly educated individuals that find San Francisco a very attractive place to live. And I think that's going to be a savings grace for uh, the San Francisco market going forward. Do you agree? 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, San Francisco has been sort of the poster child for, uh, you know, the, the post-pandemic collapse and all the things that we've seen on the ground that have been frustrating and there's been truth to it. There's been some exaggeration to, to it, but it's been, uh, it's, it's had a, a PR problem and some, you know, some issues of the doom loop and, and whatnot. And uh, don't get me wrong, there's challenges that persist that we need to tackle uh, holistically. But I think people tend to forget that the San Francisco, the Bay Area is an incredible region to live. It's a beautiful place. It's supply constrained. And we have two, you know, two incredible universities in, in uh, UC Berkeley and Stanford that uh, churn out talent. And a lot of that talent comes from around the world and tends to stay and, and you know, form the next big thing in terms of companies. Um, and I think, you know, it applies to, you know, AI, you know, everyone's talking about it and, you know, is it going to save San Francisco? You know, it's not, it, it's not a good bet to say that AI is going to save San Francisco and take uh, 35% occupancy to back to where it was, but it's a high growth, exciting industry that people are investing billions of dollars into, you know, anything from big tech to VC firms. It's really based and in, in driven in San Francisco. And there was actually a good article that came out this week in The Economist about that exactly. Um, it's great to see those articles after, you know, three, four years of everything being so negative. But I think what's important is the focus on the culture, that if you want to be part of this next thing, this culture, it's, yeah, it's going to the office, but it's being in San Francisco. It's going to happy hours for dinners and meeting that person that, you know, it's, it's this whole ecosystem, which I, I think uh, you can overlook and sort of maybe look, you know, sort of not put a lot of weight onto it. But I think it really is important when you look again, historically, how technology has really been, you know, the, the Bay Area has been the driving force for, you know, really everything. And people look at this as this the next big thing. And, and uh, to have that really based in the city is really important. Um, so I'm a believer in, you know, those dynamics and how they could sort of, you know, help drive the region forward, the economy forward, and obviously the office market as well. That's a, a great summary of the positives of the uh, Bay Area market and what yeah. I think is going to um, support the long-term success of the market. So as a final question, um, if you had to predict 2024, where do you see the sweet spots uh, for people to come in? Um, and do you think the large amount of debt that's coming due uh, that will be hard to refinance is going to create opportunities or is it really an impediment? It's going to, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities in 2024 and obviously as we go into 25, I mean, you can't hide from the fact that there's a, a tremendous uh, amount of debt maturities, again, across the country, but a lot in San Francisco that something has to give. All lenders are looking at things differently, uh, dependent on their structure or you know regulations and all that. But we are involved in a lot of situations where there's going to need to be some form of transaction, uh, given the challenges of the capital market. So if you're a well-capitalized buyer, there's going to be much more of those opportunities. We saw it start last year with a handful. I think that'll be, it'll. My guess is it's going to be double that amount. So and what you know, people buyers love transactions that need to happen and someone needs to beat the market, right? Um, they don't like it when someone says, we're going to test the market. If we hit our number, great. If we don't, we're, we're gone. There's going to be a lot more transactions that need to happen, which people love, uh, buyers love. Um, so I think we're going to see much of that this year. And I think 
from what I can tell, it's, it's again going to be in that 25 to $75 million value range, uh, which is going to be the sweet spot. And these were assets that were worth double that, you know, at least four years ago. So you're, you're buying sizable, scalable, high quality buildings in a lot of cases for, um, you know, a lower ticket price. So I think that's going to be a sweet spot. Um, the impediment or potential impediments, again, is just we're in a volatile world. There's a lot going on. It's an election year. We have, you know, two wars going on. I mean, there's just so much noise in the system that continues to persist and ultimately impacts interest rates and, you know, transactional uh, desirability and, and, and whatnot. So we, it's, that's just a constant, you know, battle that everyone faces um, that, you know, ultimately no one has a ton of control of. But I do believe that 2024 is going to be a, a pretty busy year in San Francisco with, you know, a lot more opportunities uh, in the, on the horizon. Thanks so much for spending time with us and giving us your insights on the market. Um, I do want to commend JLL and um, Eric in particular, but JLL's depth in um, analytics and market-driven data is just key in the, uh, in the Bay Area. So I uh, urge everyone to reach out to Eric and uh, thank you very much for participating. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.